Our guest today is a very powerful woman who works as a critical care medicine physician currently serving in COVID ICUs. In this episode, she shares her mindset to overcome her struggles, trying to get into medical school she only had 8% probability of entering, and how she's helping others do the same. We also talk about her experience in working at COVID ICUs in one of the hardest times that we know, having 100 patients die in one month and only two survive, and how to cope as a human being with those hard experiences. She shares her coping tools and experience. Have you ever wondered what makes people capable of creating changes that impact their lives and the world around them? What is their way of thinking, their mentality, their patterns, their perceptions of the world, their reactions to different life events? What influences them? My name is Cristina Puyol, and I invite you to join me in this adventure where we will explore together the mind of change makers. Today, we have a very powerful woman who works as a critical care medicine physician currently serving in COVID ICUs and is also an assistant professor of clinical medicine at Western University College of Osteopathic Medicine in California, US. She has a whole list of academic degrees that will blow your mind, but I'm not going to list them there. You can go so and see her curriculum. And in addition to that, she also has interest in clinical care ultrasound and neurocritical care. And she also has special interest in helping students get into medical school despite their low scores, which I love. She has this amazing podcast that is called The Female Doc. And you can go there and listen to her amazing episodes where you get a ton of information, not only for medical, but for any students who want to get ahead and especially in the US because they have these huge bills and she managed to get rid of everything. So you have to listen to that. And she has this powerful name that I love. So I'm going to welcome this woman, Rosindra Khan. Thank you so much for being here. And she's Rosie to the friends. <laughs> welcome. Thank you so much for being here. She's actually now in Chicago. Yes, I'm in Chicago. I'm so happy to be here. We've been friends for a long time and I'm just happy to catch up. And I love what you're doing here with the podcast and really shaking things up and showing how people can really change. The name actually is Changemaker's Mind because because I want to know how people like you who are a true change maker and are influencing the people around you process life uh, learns uh, you know has what do you do with your challenges so tell them a little bit about you who you are what you do so they know a little bit more about Dr. Akan <laughs> <laughs> sure so um I'm uh, a double board certified critical care doctor here in the United States and for those of you who don't know Currently in the United States, only about 30% of physicians are female. And so I've had a lot of challenges throughout uh, my medical career. Also, my parents are immigrants to the United States from India and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And I'm a first-generation American. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. But um, my parents had to struggle a lot to, you know, restart 
everything in a new country and raise me. And of course, you know, it's it's that American dream that they were chasing. They wanted to be able to provide me with more opportunities than they had in their countries back home. I wanted to honor that. I wanted to honor their hard work and, and really go for it full force. But of course, I didn't have all the same privileges that Americans have where they've been here for several generations. Where, you know, they're well-established and, you know, we struggled a lot with money. Um, it wasn't anything where... I was missing a meal. So it wasn't really bad poverty or anything. But it's interesting because in the United States, you feel it so much more because it's such a capitalistic society and everything costs money. And so even schooling was extremely expensive. I went to a private university for undergraduate and our tuition was about 30,000 US dollars per year. And then most, the average medical student loan debt after completing four years of medical school in the United States is around $300,000 wow. in uh, in debt. So it's it's a huge financial burden. And when you come from, when you're a female, you're a person of color, you come from an immigrant family, you just have all of this kind of stacked up against you. Most people who apply to medical school, the statistics show in the United States are Caucasian Americans. So they're white Americans. And of course, everyone has different backgrounds and struggles financially, you know, you never know, but statistically, they're probably more comfortable, able to, you know, get tutors and things like that to help them through Mm -hmm. a lot of the harsh sciences. And that was one thing that, you know, I struggled with. And I ended up only with a 2.9 science GPA. And to put that into context, you know, 4.0 is straight A's. And so Mm -hmm. 2.9 is a a mix of B's and C's. And uh, a lot of people tell you that that's that's not going to cut it to get into medical school. But um, yeah, I had a long journey where I pushed back against racism, sexism, and just the struggles of of not having enough money for, you know, fancy books and tutoring and things like that. And, you know, a lot of that too is, is my parents. I, I think um, it, it's nice because they bring that hardworking culture and they taught me that early on. And, and I think that's kind of what helped me push through a lot of my barriers and become a very loud, outspoken woman. <laughs> so... <laughs> Which yeah. a lot of people are going to benefit from, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you you are opening the way to women like you and not like you, you know, and and, and also men, you know. If yeah. What you were explaining, really, I got touched by her podcast. You have to listen to it. It's so eloquent and so real. You almost put the numbers <laughs> down. <laughs> so I thought that was really amazing. And, and when you grew up, what is the thing that you thought was most difficult? Because you talk about the color, the race, the... being a woman, uh, what was the hardest for you? Yeah, in elementary school, I think it was being darker and also being a little hairy kid, you know, (laughs) like (laughs) I have an Indian background and I got a really harsh nickname. The the kids on the playground would call me Hairy Monster just because I had, you know, black hair on my brown skin on my arms. And that was something that, you know, white children didn't have. White children had blonde arm hair. And uh, so it wasn't as prominent. It wasn't something that they really paid attention to until they saw that. So I was a little bit different in that respect. And I got made fun of a lot for that. But then slowly, you know, the the community that I was in, in Los Angeles, it was a suburb of Los Angeles, started to have more people of color kind of show up, but it was still, you know, that kind of stuff kind of carries with you. And then 
I think in middle school, um, that's uh, grade six to eight is when, you know, more sexism started coming in, where you start to tell them your goals of being a doctor. And, you know, the things they start to say is like, oh, well, don't you want to be a mom? Don't you want to have a family? As if you can't have both, Mm -hmm. you know? So that kind of starts to get ingrained earlier on that, you know, men are supposed to play sports and and go and have fun and play video games and science and math is, you know, where men shine. It's not where women shine. And I loved sciences. I loved math class. My dad's an engineer and he was like my best buddy growing up. We were attached (laughs) at the hip. And so he would teach me all this stuff around the house. He taught me how to fix toilets, change a tire, you know, all all just engineering stuff. And I think we need to stop gendering science. We're all human. And if you have an able body, two hands, a brain and feet, you know, you can change a tire. I don't, I don't see why that's a a man's role or a man's job. And, um, you know, sure. The, the tires fairly heavy and statistically, uh, male body and arms can probably handle that a little bit more, but you're really, it's not that big of a deal. And people make it out to be this big, huge deal. And then in college, I had a very, I specifically remember this. I had this biology professor. He was white American and I wasn't doing well in his class. I was getting a C in biology, but I knew I wanted to be a doctor. And so I went to his office hours to kind of ask him how I could maybe turn things around. And he made this very underlying racist comment. And that's how most racism is in the United States. It's very undertone. No one's going to say, oh, well, you know, you're brown. We don't want your kind in our profession Mm because you're not allowed to say that anymore because it's just, you know, blatant sex uh, racism. But he said to me, he said, well, I understand why you're not doing well in in, in the class because English is your second language. And I was born and raised in Los Angeles, so it really wasn't, you know, I was fluent in English. And I'm so thankful that I was naive to his comments at the time because when he said that to me, I thought, do I sound like a valley girl? Like, is that, am I saying like too many times? And I, I thought that that's, that's what he meant. <laughs> that I, <laughs> that, that my grammar was off and I sounded, you know, like an airhead. Um, mm. Clueless was a very popular movie at the time talking about these valley girls in Los Angeles that talk like this and you know that's hilarious what he meant but years later when I thought back on that I thought oh I know what he was doing he was trying to intimidate me by pointing out that I was a person of color in a very subtle way so that maybe I would you know, just get a little bit discouraged. And whether he intended that or not is unclear because I think a lot of um, Americans struggle with unintended uh, racism and implicit bias, right? You know, they because it's been ingrained in them to naturally be scared of a black man walking down the street wearing a hoodie. Um, That's ingrained in American society that they view, you know, Black Americans as being violent. It's just an unintentional thing. But the reason why that's there is because the media has taught them that Black Americans or, you know, in my case, Brown Americans maybe shouldn't go into professional elite spaces that were previously taken up by whites. So that was interesting. And then When I got into residency and I wanted to pursue critical care, which is an additional two years of training and fellowship, I had attending doctors that were my same race, you know, Pakistani male attendings who 
came from traditional backgrounds. So he had, you know, a stay-at-home wife who helped him take care of Mm -hmm. the children. He was able to raise his family in the United States. He immigrated here. And, you know, I'm not sure he, he had any ill will, but when he asked me what I wanted to do, I told him I wanted to be a critical care doctor. And he said, oh, you know, well, how are you going to have a family? And I don't think you should do that um, because you need to get married and have kids and that'll be a better focus. And you know, he didn't say it in so many words. I forgot the way that he said it, but that's what he meant. And I just stayed quiet, you know, because when you're not in a position of power, what are you going to say? <laughs> it didn't really bother me because my father and mother had ingrained in me that there's nothing you can't do. And I had very, very loving, supportive, encouraging parents. And my dad was like, you can do anything, anything you want to in this life. There's nothing stopping you, not absolutely nothing. And so, but I know that there's other communities that don't get that kind of encouragement or parents that are that supportive. So even whenever I made a mistake or I didn't get the best grades, my dad was like, that's okay. You'll, you'll do better next time. I have this, you know, he had just the confidence in the world in me. And so I was able to continue to push through all of that. But I I think about now that I'm in a position of power, I, I think a lot about the women and men who may have had encounters similar to me, but maybe didn't have the encouraging parental support that ingrained such resilience in me to be able to say, you know what? screw you. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say because I know me and I have confidence in me. And it's very difficult, especially for, I think, women of color in the United States. There's so many cultures here, especially in Los Angeles. There's Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, Asian, Asian-Americans, all kinds of backgrounds. But the traditional culture, you know, we all have overlapping similarities in that most households are run by women and most men are the breadwinners. And so Mm -hmm. they'll go, you know, financially provide for the family. And then the woman provides in other ways by taking care of the household. And we're in this weird period where we're starting to see a shift. But some of these women, some of the pre-med students that I work with in trying to help them get into medical school come from these families. So some come from families similar to mine, where the parents are telling them, I came to this country for you so you can be successful and push through everything and we'll do whatever it takes to support you. And then I have those other traditional households. And and, and this is, it's not like a, there's a right or a wrong. It mm-hmm. just is what it is. It's <laughs> cultural tradition that's just passed on. And, and some people don't know how to come out of that box and because it's what they know as parents, it's comfort in, you know, you'll have a comfortable life because I had a comfortable life in this role as a stay-at-home wife and mother. Therefore, I want to make sure that you have that, right? So there's no wrongdoing in in their parenting. But, you know, several of my pre-med female students have said that they've been discouraged because, you know, maybe they didn't get the best grades. And so that's when a lot of their parents have told them, you know, maybe it's time to throw in the towel. Science is hard and becoming a physician is hard. So So, you know, why not focus on a a career or a a smaller job role or why not just get married? Mm -hmm. That'll be an easier path for you. You'll live a good, comfortable life. And they don't mean it in that way. But I see these women struggle because they know in their heart that there's nothing else they want to do except for be a doctor, be a physician in the United States. And they just didn't have the money or the resources or even the mental focus because of everything 
everything that was going on around them in the community to be able to get the better grades. And then there's only so much discouragement you can take. You know, if you have a pre-medical college advisor telling you you're not going to make it, which mine did, by the way, and I completely ignored. And then you get that at home and then you get that in your, you know, church community, mosque community, temple, wherever you go. That starts to add up and it's a lot to kind of overcome. I was lucky in that I had a very stable home in in that it was kind of the opposite. My my father wouldn't entertain anyone saying anything to me and discouraging about my career. And um and and some people don't get that. Same thing with the queer community. That's that's a big thing, you know. With a what? Queer community. So LGBTQ, lesbian. Oh, okay. Gay. Okay, yeah. Yeah, bi trans folks in the United States, they get discouraged a lot just because of who they are. So same thing, the physician profession in the United States is considered this elite sort of profession that's not meant for people who are different. You know, you're supposed to, professionalism is defined in a very specific way in the United States that is in alignment with Eurocentric looks and standards of, of race. And, you know, there's a lot of racism, sexism. And so as, let's say, a gay man of color, how are you going to fit into that? And then mm. you kind of don't. And then same thing, they get discouraged throughout their career paths. Like, oh, don't you want to be a personal shopper? And then they throw them into these stereotypes. And it doesn't make sense. Sexuality has nothing to do with, you know, what you like. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you and I know that when it comes to being who we are as humans, it's just energy right? We're mm -hmm. all just energy. We all have feminine and masculine energy and we all balance it differently. You know, it has nothing to do with our intelligence or what we're capable of. And so that's some of the stuff that I really try to instill in my, in my pre-medical students, my, my programs, the future doctor formula, because I want to get them out of their head. And I, and I do a lot of the work that, you know, you and I have done at, you know, other conferences, you know, with Mind Valley and things like that. And I show them that there's other ways of rewiring your brain just to not go automatically go to the negative because I think that's what really builds resilience in people yeah wow you you've packed a lot of information <laughs> I know. I'm sorry I went <laughs> no, it's amazing amazing I mean I, I hear you in, in so many things because when I study my career I also in like in the first year I had a, a professor I went to ask him questions and the first thing he told me was like oh I've had many girls like you and you're not gonna make it this is the first year And he, he was actually a very good teacher. Like I, I stayed with him through the first year because he was a very good instructor, but I never went again to ask him any question. But the thing is, like you said, in my mind, it was like, okay, so you think so. And let me prove you, you know, the opposite. And so it, for me, it was a challenge. Like, okay, I'm going to take your challenge. And I ended up teaching in the same department as him. So I finished... Oh, Magical. Yeah, yeah, it's hilarious. So I ended up teaching the same, the same subject that he said I was not going to pass in, in, you know, teaching with him. So it was quite funny. So, but it's true that depending what they tell you, it's not touching any spot area or soft area, you know, uh, where you can get damaged. And some people do have many like cuts. I say cuts, you know, and you're pouring salt over those cuts. And and some people have more, and then it's harder for them whether it's a woman or a female, I don't care. You know, it's, it's like you're saying, there's many people like, for example, for guys also, why do they have to do certain things? Why does a guy always have to know how to change a tire? Maybe they don't want to change a tire, you know, <laughs> it's nice because they're stronger. Like you're saying, so some things 
are nicer if you have, you know, some help around and maybe it's a guy, but it's stereotype. And if what you like is really like in your case, being a doctor, you know, why can you not be a doctor? And if the females that you're meeting want to be a doctor and everybody's telling not to, and they don't have a support, then it's going to be much harder. But in your experiences, you're also mentoring many young students. What do you think are tools that can help them if they don't have the support, they don't have a family or they don't have the mindset because they've been struggling, you know, since young? I think the biggest thing is starting to recognize limiting beliefs. Mm-hmm. That's one of the biggest parts in my program. Um, that's that's phase zero in my program. I start them off with starting to recognize thoughts that are going on in their own head because sometimes we're our own worst critic. Yeah. And I have several students, you know, struggle with the MCAT test, which is the entrance examination for medical school in the United States. It's it's called the MCAT. It's a very difficult exam. And based on that score, you can get into medical school or you can't. Um, And so some of these students just say, oh, well, I'm I'm bad at standardized tests. And so imagine going into a test thinking you're bad at it. Not a good beginning. Yeah, it's a terrible beginning. And they they just, it's it's just childhood learned behavior that can be unlearned. You start to realize like, hey, maybe, maybe I should start to change my thinking from I'm a bad test taker to I am willing to believe or I'm open to believing that I can improve on my test-taking skills. Mm -hmm. It's just a small step. You know, sometimes with affirmations, we'll go from zero to 100. I'm a good test-taker, but it doesn't feel right, right? Because it's such a huge step and you have so many beliefs that have been built into your subconscious mind that like, nope, you're definitely not a good test-taker. So I I teach them how to do that baby step in the middle. Just, Mm -hmm. Just be willing to think that things can be different for you in your abilities because you see other people do it. Other people take tests just fine. What What is it about you? There's nothing that's hardwired, I think. The reason why I push that so much on my students is because I've been able to get out of my own head. You know, I really started diving into law of attraction work in 2018. And then, you know, shortly after that, we met, um, you know, you start to work on that and you start to release some of those limiting beliefs. You know, I had limiting beliefs in other areas, but test taking wasn't one of them because my childhood reinforced that I was a good test taker. So I was lucky in that particular sense, but there's other, everyone has some sort of struggle with believing that they can be a thousand percent successful. You know, there's always going to be something and we've, kind of dove into this too before uh, Marissa Peer truly believes she's a hypnotherapist and she truly believes that at the core of everything somehow we've all learned that we're not enough just as we are as human beings who we are um, just to be born on this earth that we are enough for full abundance everything that this world has to offer us and that's our journey as humans, I guess, is to kind of figure that out. So I try to teach that very, very early on and just start to slowly unravel some of those limiting beliefs. And then that ends up building confidence in their own abilities. And they're like, yeah, you know what? They start to see it. They start to, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, I, I, I went into this test thinking that, oh, maybe I can do better. And guess what? I did do better. And so then it continues to reinforce that. And then they build some momentum and then they're able to get through it. Another common one is I'm not a good writer. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a science person, which is, you know, to some extent, our brains have, you know, the language pieces and, and mathematical pieces. And so we may have developed one or the other, one 
particular part might come easier because of our childhood interests. But that doesn't mean we can't learn strategies on how to write. We're all human. We all have the same brain. And the brain is so wonderful. You know, we talk about neuroplasticity. And I think that's that what that's what makes us as humans so amazing is that we have this amazing ability to learn new things every single day. And I, I tell them, if you go into an essay thinking you're not a good writer, guess what? Your essay is not going to be good. You have to truly believe that there is the chance that you can learn some new skill or learn a new technique or learn my formula and apply that formula to be able to write a really great essay and that you do have a good story to tell. You just have to get it out. The one thing they should learn in school is that you can learn. Yes. If you can just learn that, that's amazing. Like I remember from my university experience, we did things that didn't make sense. But the one thing I learned was to think. Mm-hmm. And that's a tool I needed because I study computer engineering, which changes as, as fast as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. So you cannot learn a language, you know, to program. You cannot learn a machine because it's going to be obsolete very quickly. So you have to learn to think. And, and if you can learn to think and learn to learn, that's the biggest tool that we can give people like when they're younger, because that's that's how life is going to be, to be open to learning and to be open to, you know, knowing that. And, and the, actually the, the one phase zero you said you have kind of like a minus zero because you're learning or teaching or helping people realize that they can also question their thoughts Mm -hmm. so before you even want to change them and change into whatever positive sentence you want to put the fact that you're questioning your thinking that's a big thing you know because a lot of people you they can't even see that it's their culture and it's not them they might not be what they're doing you know they might not like what they're doing but the culture is telling them that so the fact that you can question that that's already a big thing. So that's really nice that you can do that with, with younger generations, you know, now that you're old at all, <laughs> you're really young. <laughs> They're probably like two years younger than you. <laughs> no, <it's not. laughs> no, um, most of them are in their twenties. And you're 22, early. I think. <laughs> oh, stop it. <laughs> you look like you're 22. Yeah, no. <laughs> that's over. <laughs> When I was reading the website, I was questioning one of the sentences, and now I understand why, where you said, I'm helping all the students who want to get into medical school with low scores. And I thought that ending, like, why with low scores, you know? And now I understand why, that many people think that maybe with those scores, they couldn't go there. And you've proved Mm -hmm. that you can, and not that you had low, but you didn't have the peak. So it proves that anyone has a chance if they want to take the chance, right? Right, exactly. I think I had very low scores. So I had a 2.9 science GPA. And so statistically, I wasn't supposed to get into medical school. I only had an 8% chance of getting into medical school, but I I just kept pushing. I wasn't going to take no for an answer. So I just kept pushing and I thought, well, if I, if I don't get in this year, I'll just try again next year and I'll take some more classes to prove that, you know, I can get A's. And I think it's about storytelling, really. You mm-hmm. know, just tell your story. Tell, tell about your struggles. Tell, show why you're so dedicated to being a doctor. What is it that lights you up? And I was lucky enough to be able to do that on the first round. So I got into medical school the first, my first try, even though statistically I only had an 8% chance, but 8% is 8%. Yeah. You just need one. Yes. I I mean, I got rejected from probably about 15 medical schools and only one school said yes, but you only need one school to say (laughs) yes. Exactly. 
<laughs> you only need one yes. And then yes, you, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. don't let the no's push you down. So yeah. And now you're working in the ICUs in one of the hardest times yeah. in, in at least the history that we know. How has that been for you? Yeah, that's that's you know, working in in COVID ICUs. Uh, intensive care units has, has been a struggle. It wasn't as bad last year. I was flying to different ICUs in, in the state of California. You know, we were very busy, but it wasn't as bad until after the holidays. I think Christmas is really when Los Angeles surge really started to hit. And um, the last six weeks through Jan January to February were, it, it was the worst thing I've ever seen. I had tripled a workload. And uh, like I was telling you, you know, before we, we jumped on here, I only had two patients survive COVID in the ICU. Same with my colleagues. We had 100 deaths wow. within the span of a month, which, you know, 100, you know, you, you kind of uh, sometimes you hear numbers and it, it doesn't put anything into context. But 100 deaths in a month means that's potentially a set of parents and a brother per day, Yeah, you know? If, when you start to think of it like that, you, and then you start to think of all the families that were affected and the ripple effects of, of that, it really starts to hit you that that's that's not normal. And um, so I've been in trying a, to, a, to put it in perspective, like in a normal year, 2019, 2018, when you work in ICU, what is the amount of death that you can deal with in two months? Yeah, um, it would probably be around a death a day on average. One death per day, sometimes every other day. It really depends on the type of ICU it is. Um, you know, like there's, so they separate them out, like neurosurgical ICU, trauma ICUs, cardiac ICUs. So the survivability is, it kind of varies, but usually we we deal with one death per day, which, you know, it, that, that still sounds like a lot, but tripling that load is too much yeah. because I balance my career and, and my job role by feeling really happy when I am able to save someone. And then I, I remember those cases like, oh, well, you know, that one survived and got to go home, spend Christmas with their loved one. And the holidays are especially difficult because, yeah. you know, you, you know that that family's Christmas is never going to be the same. Exactly. You know, and you, you think about that a lot. And so I've, I've, um, you know, throughout the years, I, I was very burned out early on in my career, and I had to learn how to pull myself out of that burnout. In the United States, the studies show that emergency room physicians and ICU doctors have the highest rates of burnout at 55%. Wow. And um, that was before the pandemic. So I'm sure those those numbers have significantly gone up. Um, Did you get help from the hospitals or whatever? <laughs> to cope with everything? You know, there's resources available, but no one... <laughs> there's some quotes. <laughs> yeah, there's some quoting. Yes. There's resources available, but there's a lot of pride, I think, too, in how much you're supposed to handle. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be strong and keep pushing and pushing and pushing, and you're in this elite profession, and you're supposed to be able to handle this, but um, it's, it's hard to handle it. And actually, just on Monday, I was lobbying in Washington, D.C., I was talking to my Congress people about this particular bill, the Dr. Lorna Breen bill. And unfortunately, she's a, she's a female physician, uh, emergency room physician who died by suicide last year. She was in the in New York um, during the big surge that we had in, here in the United States. And, and she unfortunately couldn't cope. And so with that bill, we're hoping to get more funding to be able to have more realistic type of resources where people can actually reach out and, and start earlier 
You know, we need to start teaching burnout symptoms earlier in medical school. And one of the biggest reasons why I think people don't like their doctors is because they're they're apathetic, they're emotionally detached, they have poor bedside manner, but that's actually one of the symptoms of burnout because as a human being, you're going to shut down your emotions because if you continue to get attached to your patients, you're not going to be able to survive that, right, yourself. Yeah. And so apathy and just complete emotional detachment to your patients is a sign of burnout and it's being ignored for too long. We often mix up stress, anxiety, depression, and burnout. And burnout is very, very specific. Studies have shown that there are treatments to burnout so that you can get that empathy and that humanistic quality back so that you're seeing your patients again in a really healthy way so that both parties benefit, doctors and patients. So Um, what does the burnout look like? So like I mentioned, um, apathy is one of the big ones. You start to feel lack of joy in even your hobbies at home. You start to feel a little bit hopeless. Like, what's the point? And I've seen a lot of my colleagues because COVID is such a terrible disease that honestly, no matter what we do, it especially in this last six-week surge, whatever viral variant it was, no matter what I did, my patients died anyways. That was terrible because usually scientifically, you know, like, oh, there's something I can do. There's something, some trick I can pull, some medication I can add that can turn this ship around to help them reverse the dying process. But there was nothing we could do. And, and so you start to feel really hopeless. One of my colleagues, he was he was so bad. Every time he would sign out to me, because he was working the night shift. So in the morning when I would come in, he would give me a, an overview of what happened. And his sign out started to be like, well, this, this person's probably going to die today. This one's going to die. This one's going to die. I, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. And he's, he continued to use this language. And I could tell it was really affecting him. And it wasn't because he felt like, who cares about these patients? But that's kind of what it ends up coming across as. Like, Ugh, who cares? Like, there's nothing we can do. But it's, it's a survival mechanism where you have to detach because processing the amount of families that are going to be affected. You know, there's, these, these are people's mothers and fathers, sisters, brothers, you know, significant loved ones. And even, you know, I've even had patients who who legally had no next of kin representative, but they're still a human being. They still wanted to live this life. They're still here to be cherished and to contribute to our community. So it's like, you know, we find value in that. And, uh, and you know, you try your best to do that. So I, th- I think teaching that stuff earlier on can can really help. Um, and I've been lucky to, to be a burnout researcher and I know all of this. So now that I'm starting to feel the effects of it, um, I've reached out and and started kicked into high gear my wellness plan. So, you know, I'm I'm meditating, I'm journaling, I'm I'm releasing things, I'm trying to process some of my nightmares, and I'm doing a lot of visual techniques where you know I'll replay my nightmare and then change the the ending. I'll visual, I'll redo my my dream and I'll visualize a different ending and kind of try to see it as a way for me to therapeutically release it. And also try to find some sort of comfort in knowing that they are at peace because really they, they suffered a lot on, on machines and things like that. So these are all sort of the techniques that I've, I've been trying to use to be able to cope with 
with everything that happened. But I also have like a support group or some type of you know environment that helps you. So you're not feeling this alone. Yeah, I I the American College of Chess Physicians and the Society of Critical Care Medicine in the United States, I think, has some resources and has in, in the national conferences has been trying to collect communities or like little support groups. But I think all of us are still way too busy taking care of COVID patients to be able to get together and talk about these things. And like I mentioned as well, a majority of the physicians are men. 70% are men. And like we talked about before, men are taught not to, to be feel. emotional. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're not allowed to feel, you're not allowed to cry and things like that. And so I think it'll, it's an, uh, it's going to be an uphill battle for the next year for sure. So for someone that feels right now, because I think the hardest thing is, is when you're down to reach out, whatever that means, it can be reaching out to a book, you know, it can be reaching out to a person it can be so what helped you to start reaching out because also you've been kind of trained but if you in the past feel burnout what was the first step that got you started in in getting healed Mm. you know early on when I was learning about burnout uh, and I was burned out the reaching out wasn't one of the things I used but I guess like you said you can reach out to a book so I reached out to working out you know, exercising, Mm -hmm. eating healthy. So I hired a personal trainer and that really helped me stay on track and moving my body, body movements, releasing energy and things like that. At the time, I didn't know that that's what I was doing and it was very therapeutic, but that's one of the things that I did. And then traveling was seeing new things, exploring new places, meeting new people. That was a big thing for me earlier on. Now that I know, I just, I'll just text my friends, give them a heads up. Hey, I'm not okay this week. I'm having recurring nightmares. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up. Um, just check in on me. So I, I make my needs known and, you know, your friends are going to respond to that. You know, they'll, they'll make sure that to check up and check in on you and, and do that. You're, you know, reach out to your support group. I've become much more vulnerable in letting people know that I'm not okay mm-hmm. so that they are able to, you know, show up and help me when I need it. Because I know statistically that this can go down a really bad rabbit hole. And so I believe, because I'm a scientist, I'm just very much into science, statistics, data. So if the data tells me that I'm in trouble, statistically, you know, 50, even before the pandemic, 55%, you know, I, I could flip a coin and I, I, I could probably be know that I'm burned out. So that's what kind of pushed me to say, okay, you know, I'll start using some of these techniques and letting my friends know that I'm not okay. And even in, in dating and relationships, I think I have such a different role at work where it's this hyper-masculine machismo kind of work life. And then at home, when I come back, it's difficult for me to turn that off because I'm supposed to be the leader of the healthcare team when I'm at work and I'm supposed to be a boss, the decision maker, and I'm supposed to be the strong one. And, and then when I come home, it's hard to turn that off and just release and cry and feel like, you know what, I was helpless today because, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out a solution or nothing that I'm doing at work is, is is uh, like the medications aren't working to help turn around COVID and help people survive. But so it's kind of the thought process that I go through. And I'm glad I reach out because people people do respond to that, I think. I think I'm so happy that mental health is much more on the tip of our tongues and that we're mm-hmm. talking about it out loud. There's less shame around it too, I think. And I think people are starting to applaud vulnerability. Because they don't see it as like a mental illness. 
but just like a, a need. But mm -hmm. it's, it's a good point where you brought, because I agree that many times people, when they're in or starting to go into a hole, they don't reach out because a, a good thing is to reach out. And this is something we are promoting constantly, reach out, reach out. Um, but sometimes that's not an option because it's not even crossing their mind. Uh, so the mm -hmm. fact that you, you, your soul was smart enough to say exercise, you know, <laughs> and that first time and get you into exercising, which is an amazing thing. I wish, you know, people will really realize how beneficial exercise can be for your mind and for your, you know, releasing emotions and just punching a bag, you know, a boxing bag, <laughs> just mm -hmm. let it all out. It's really, really helpful. So I hope those who listen to this podcast really listen to what she was saying about burnout and, and can hear steps that you can take moving forward because that's a whole lot of information and and i think people need it now especially with what you guys are going through and and families and a lot of people that don't know how to deal with this and they turn the the switch of emotions are off because that's the way to cope that's yeah. and that has to be dealt with at some point so yeah. so that's really good one thing that i think is really important is you know you you hear my story as an icu doctor like oh my god that's that's so terrible but even if you're just at home even if you're unemployed and you're you're isolated you're quarantined your struggle is just as important i want to make that very clear i think yes, people yes. start to make comparisons of how bad they have it and that's when you can get lost in your in your mental health because yes. that's just as important your struggle is just as important as mine yes you know even if it's something small that you're struggling with of course there's you're always going to find someone who has it harder um it's acknowledging how you feel because i've mm -hmm. heard these from people that have studied meditation and healing and they know the whole nine yards and then they question themselves with well i shouldn't be feeling this you know i should i should be able to cope with this it's mm -hmm. like well now you're going through this let you know let's let it through run run the process you know there is a process yeah. and just because you know all the healings of the world it doesn't mean that you're not going to have things to cope with and it's not going to be instant you know everything is a process so you need to have the time realize and then figure out which tools you need for this time which may be different next time but is it is, is realization and giving yourself the space for coping with it the way that you think is best for you and if you don't know how then you reach out or you experiment and you try one day running one day singing one day jumping the other day in the shower and see what works because that's also going to vary depending on where you are in your life and it's important also what you said that it doesn't matter what the level is it's not about comparing or if she's mm -hmm. having these struggles i shouldn't be fine no if you're struggling with this other thing then you have to deal with it yeah yeah well said well said well there's so much i mean we could go on and talk i know that i'm having so much fun talking with you yeah there's so much and, and you have an amazing experience experience and also i i feel you you've integrated a lot of what you're talking you know you've lived it you've integrated and now you want to help others and go through that and i think one of the characteristics of a leader is generosity you know and they're willing to be there for other people i feel you when you say that that you really are a true leader oh my gosh such kind words thank you so much yes 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 but um i don't know if there's anything that you could say to people who find uh, change challenging what will be one thing to help them and we can leave with some something like this? One of the mantras that I live by is done is better than perfect. So when you're when you're trying to accomplish something, you know, you're you're often reaching for perfection. And when you're trying to change and move forward, that 
can paralyze people a lot. Just get it done. Just get that task done or move forward and just take that small baby step. I think that's one of the the biggest things that you can do for yourself to to move forward. It's just that one tiny little baby step and just get it done because it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be done. Yeah. Leaning to imperfect action. That's That was my mantra this week, actually. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> See, synchronicity. Yes, because I started this podcast really in one week when the whole thing was put up in one ah. week. So I'm like, lean into imperfect action, you know? So that's the yeah. synchronicities. Yeah, that's the way to do it. <laughs> well, I'm, I don't know, but that's the way it got done. Well, thank you so much, Rosie, for your time and for your oh. kindness, for your sharing, for your wisdom. Uh, wish you the best. And um, I will put all your information so people can follow you and follow your podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Christina. I had so much fun and congratulations on, on this. This is amazing. I'm looking forward to listening to your podcast and so many more episodes because you really do also have a lot of experience experience and you've done so many wonderful things and I can't wait to listen. Great. Thank you. Thanks.